Let me pray uh, before we try to come to terms with 1 Kings chapter 17. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this part of your word, written so long ago, speaking of events so far from here, can speak to us tonight. Father, we pray that by your spirit you would enliven our hearts to hear your word. Father, we ask that you are preparing our hearts even now to be humble before it, to be obedient before it, and we pray that in that we would see your son and in seeing him we would serve him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now it's worth having 1 Kings 17 open. It's page 358. 1 Kings 17. Blaise Pascal once said, However vast a man's resources are, he is capable of but one great passion. However vast a man's resources are, he is capable of one passion in life. So let me ask you from the outset what your one great passion is in life. What is it that drives you more than anything else? What is it that uh, butters your toast in the morning is a saying we have in Australia. I'm not sure whether you have that here. But what is it that gets you up in the morning? What is it that pushes you on each day? Well, let me uh, give you a story about a guy with a pretty interesting answer to that. His one passion was kind of unusual. I'm not sure if you've uh, met him before. His name is Lawn Chair Larry. Uh, And uh, this story comes from California, as you'd expect, with a name like that. And 1982 was when he uh, made his big surge to fame. Larry Walters of Los Angeles is one of the few people to contend for the Darwin Awards and live to tell the tale. The Darwin Awards, uh, if you don't know, are for people uh, who have fortunately knocked themselves off uh, the human race uh, in the hope that the human race would progress. They've uh, taken themselves out of the chain so that we have a chance of actually moving forward. Lawn Chair Larry is an example of that, but he actually lived to tell the tale. This is what he said back in 1982. I have fulfilled my 20-year dream, said Walters, a former truck driver for a company that makes TV commercials. I'm staying on the ground from now on. I have proved the thing works. Larry's boyhood dream was to fly, but fate had conspired against him to keep him from his dream. He joined the Air Force, but his poor eyesight disqualified him from the job of pilot. And after he was discharged from the military, he sat in his backyard watching jets fly overhead. It was from there that he hatched his weather balloon plan while sitting outside in his extremely comfortable Sears lawn chair. He decided to purchase 45 weather balloons from an Army-Navy surplus store. He tied them to his tethered lawn chair, dubbed Inspiration One, and filled the four-inch diameter balloons with helium. He then strapped himself into the chair with some sandwiches, some Miller Lite beer and a pellet gun. (laughs) He figured what he would do is when he was high enough, he'd pop a few of the balloons when it was time to descend. Larry's plan was to sever the anchor and lazily float to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard. There he would enjoy a few hours of flight before coming back down. But things didn't work out quite as Larry planned. When his friends cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his jeep, he did not float lazily up to 30 feet. Instead, he streaked into the yellow sky as if shot from a cannon, (laughs) pulled by the lift of 42 helium balloons, each holding 33 cubic feet of helium. 
He didn't level off at 100 feet, nor did he level off at 1,000 feet. (laughs) After climbing and climbing, he levelled off at 16,000 feet. (laughs) It's a true story. (laughs) At that height, he decided he couldn't risk shooting any of the balloons. Lest he unbalance the load and really find himself in trouble. So he stayed there, drifting, cold, frightened, with his beer and his sandwiches, for more than 14 hours. He crossed the primary approach corridor of LA International Airport, and there Transworld Airlines and Delta Airlines pilots radared in a very strange sighting. Eventually he gathered up the nerve to shoot a few of the balloons and slowly did descend. Unfortunately, on the way down, he he tangled in power lines, blacking out a Long Beach neighbourhood for some 20 minutes. Larry eventually climbed to safety where he was arrested by waiting members of the LAPD. And as he was led away in handcuffs, a reporter dispatched to cover the story asked him why he did it. Larry replied, a man just can't sit around. (laughs) There's Larry, launch here, Larry. His passion was to fly. And he went to extremes uh, to achieve his passion. Let me ask you again, however vast a man's resources are, he is capable of one passion. What's yours? Well, tonight I'm hoping as we begin this series on One Kings, and we're only going to look at three chapters of it, that God would rekindle our passion for going his way with our life. He would rekindle our passion to trust him above all else. And so really this series, 1 Kings 17 through to 1 Kings 19, is a, is a bit of a reality check for us to see how we're going when it comes to passionately following our God. And my goal is that as we look at these chapters, God will raise the temperature of our faith and our passion for going his way with our lives. I'm hoping that as we hear God's word, he will do that. He will turn up the heat of our passion for following him. Because I don't know about you, but I suspect for me, the tendency is always in the opposite direction. The tendency is always to cool down towards lukewarmness, half-heartedness as a Christian. And if that's where you're at right now, then let me encourage you to listen deeply to these words from these chapters and to pray deeply. And if you do that, I'm convinced that God will rekindle your passion for following him. So let me pray again as uh, we we start to look at 1 Kings. Let me pray that God will do just that, that he would rekindle our passion for him if it's dwindling. Father God, we thank you for 1 Kings 17 and we pray now as we open up this passage, this wonderful passage, that you would do just that, that you would set a fire in our hearts that cannot be put out. Amen. Now 1 Kings, as you would well know, is Old Testament narrative. It's a story. And it's meant to be read as a story. So let me encourage you, if you're in the habit of opening the Bible at the start of a sermon and then somewhere in the middle sort of shutting it, thinking, I'm done with that now, keep it open. Uh, It's hard to read a story without the book open. And so it's well worth having, having open as we look at the characters, as we stop and pause along the way to see what God would have us see from this story. Now, as we pick up the story, it is the story of God's people. And by this stage in 1 Kings 17, the great kingdom of Israel, God's kingdom, has split in two, split in two some time ago and our story zooms in on the northern kingdom, one part of this once great nation. And by this stage they're up to the third dynasty in the northern kingdom, the third sort of run of families. And as we, as we meet them we're up to King Ahab. 
Now all throughout this period as the kingdom split and as they went their own ways, God had continued to speak to his people, continued to show them the way he wanted them to go. But as time went on, they had become increasingly disinterested, increasingly unsure that going God's way was the way forward for Israel. And this feeling had dripped down right from the top, right from the kings. If you look in the early chapters of 1 Kings, king after king gets the same assessment of his rule. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the summary given to their leadership. And as we get to King Ahab, he is numero uno when it comes to that. If you look at the last verses of chapter 16, he did more evil in the eyes of God than any before him. He did more to provoke God's anger than any before him. He is the world record holder when it comes to that. If you look at those last verses in chapter 16, you see that he's got himself to a point where he considers his sin, his decision to go against God, as trivial. It wasn't a big deal anymore. So much so that he thought it was okay to be married to a woman who trusted other gods. You might remember when we looked at Revelation last week, we came across the figure Jezebel. Well, here's the original. Jezebel was Ahab's wife, a woman who loved other gods, not the God of Israel. And she had brought those gods into the kingdom and the obvious happened. Baal, her god, became the backup god for Israel. When things weren't going quite right, they sort of switched to Baal worship in the hope that that would help. And slowly but surely, Baal went from the sideline to centre stage with his own temple and his own place of worship. You see, if you stop trusting God, you'll believe anything. And that's where Israel was at. Baal was the way forward for them. And then in chapter 17 comes my favourite man in the whole Bible. I named uh, my, my son's second name is after this because my hope is that if Finn was going to model himself on any man, he'd model himself on Elijah. At least it would be an interesting ride for him anyway in life. He is an amazing, amazing figure. Comes out of nowhere really, although the storm has been brewing as we've seen into this malaise of a people moving further and further away from their God, listening less and less to their God, comes Elijah the Tishbite, a man moving in the opposite direction to his people and moving that way at a million miles an hour. Have a look at verse 1. Elijah is moved by what moves God. He desires that God be honoured. He wants the people to feel the weight of their attitude, their rejection of their God. It is not right that the king king thinks it's trivial to move away from God's ways. And so God calls Elijah to say what he says in verse 1. As surely as God lives, as surely as Elijah serves him, the very lifeblood of the land, the rain, will be taken away. God is going to shut up the sky and it will not be opened again until he speaks. You see what God is doing? He is taking away the very thing that they thought Baal provided. Baal was the fertility God, the God of bumper crops, the God of prosperity, the rain God. Now the true God steps onto the stage and shuts up his sky. And he does it to show them that their faith, their certainty in Baal was misplaced. But then you see in verse 2 to 3, Elijah is called to run. And at first, uh, at first impressions, you, you think, of course he runs. He's just walked up to this powerful king, the king of Israel, and he's told him it's not going to rain for three years. There'll be no prosperity. 
the crops will dry up, it will be a miserable time. Of course he runs. That's the absolute worst news a king can get. And this might be part of the reason he runs. If you look in chapter 18, you see how much he is hated, especially by the king's wife, Jezebel. But I suspect there's more at play here than that. Remember, if you look carefully, he runs at God's command, not out of fear. He runs because God commands him to do. The God who has commanded him to shut up the sky, surely he can protect him from Ahab. Elijah hides for a much, much more important reason. He is the very mouthpiece of God for Israel, the very way they hear God's voice. The moment Elijah leaves Israel is the moment God's word leaves Israel. There is to be no water, but much, much worse, there is to be no word from God for Israel. Nothing. He has shut up the sky, now he is shutting his mouth. I'm not sure if you've ever thought of God's word, the absence of God's word as being judgment in your life. I think God's word can be absent from us even without us knowing it, even without us being aware that it is gone and I suspect that's what's happened here for Israel. You know, it's easy to have God's voice, God's word disappear from our ears even when it's in our very hands as it is tonight in our homes, on our bookshelves, in our MP3 players, in our car CD machines, everywhere we can have a flood of it and be stone cold dry when it comes to hearing that word. And do you see the pattern of how that happens? It leaves because our heart left long before. It leaves because Ahab had got to the point where his sin was trivial, where going God's way didn't matter anymore. It leaves because we decide not to trust God and to trust other things instead. And God says that is no small thing. For it's not our word that has left us, some piece of advice. You know, a Dr Phil Pearl, I'm not sure if you've got Dr Phil over here, but in Australia he's all over the place. He used to be on Oprah Winfrey every every now and then. He'd come on and offer wise words and everyone would go, wow, Dr Phil, that was amazing. It's not like that. It's not just some handy piece of advice. The word of God has left and without it we're at a dead end even if it takes a lifetime to see it. One of my favourite toys that Finn's been given so far is a little Thomas the Tank Engine uh, train and mat set that he's got. I think uh, my dad actually brought it back from uh, a, a toy store in London called Hamley's and I just love it. Finn doesn't love it so much, I love it. But uh, basically what it is is this big white mat and you get this little roller and you've got to fill up the roller with water And if you fill up the roller with water, there's a little sort of pattern on the end of the roller and you roll out a track and the little Thomas train, you switch it on and it just chugs along on the track you've made. And the problem with it is, is the track dries up very quickly because that way you can make more tracks. So you've got to keep filling it up with water so that the train knows where to go. And if the track runs out, what happens is this Thomas train is a bit too dopey to realise what's happened and it just keeps chugging along to the very edge of the mat and then it's sort of this pathetic whimper, just a bleh of the edge of the track and I think when it comes to God's word that's exactly the same for us that is what's happening to Israel God's people here you shut yourself off from God's word and sooner or later you are the same as Thomas on this mat with no direction even if it takes you to the very edge of the mat to see it but not so Elijah he is a man driven by God's word 
God's passions. And so God commands him in verse 3 to 4 to go into this ravine. And if you look carefully at the command that he's given, it's one packed with promise, packed with God's provision. It's a supernatural command. It seems ridiculous. He's asking him to go to this ravine and and ravens are going to fly overhead morning and night and drop meat for him to eat. A ridiculous, almost out of our experience promise. And yet, verse 6, it happens just as he has said. Such a simple line and yet such a powerful demonstration of God's certain and gracious provision for those who trust him. And as we reach verse 7, God's command against Israel, his command that he will shut up the sky and his promise to provide for Elijah sort of collide. He has promised there'd be no rain and yet he has promised he would look after his man Elijah. But even the water in the ravine has dried up. And here you see the flip side of God's certainty. Yes, he will bless those who trust him. But yes, he will surely judge those who don't. And so verse 8, again, God speaks into Elijah's situation of need. And again, verse 9, he commands him. Again, it's a ridiculous command. God tells him to go this time to a widow. Now a widow will provide for him. You see what God is doing? He keeps raising the bar for Elijah, pushing him to keep trusting him. Ravens maybe, but a widow of all people. All throughout the Bible, they are the ones who are provided for, not the other way around. God seems to be choosing the most unlikely sources of provision for his man. And yet again, Elijah trusts him, this fanciful promise. And it happens just as he has said. Now here's where I want to pause for a little while and have a look at this widow because I think everything about her is amazing. You know, it's easy, you you meet these characters in the Old Testament in in stories like this and, you know, it's a bit like a bit part character in a play. You sort of see them on stage for a second and then they disappear and you can think, oh, it's no big deal. But she is hugely important. So important that Jesus mentions her again in Luke 4 and when he does, it's like he's dropped a bomb in Israel. It's like he's walked into a party and said, what is the most inappropriate, offensive thing I can say right now? And he said it. He's mentioned this widow of Zarephath. They are so angry when he does. What is it about her that's so important? Well, let's have a look. Firstly, verse 9. First thing to notice about her is where she lives. Zarephath. Sidon. And if you look at a map of this area, you will see that this is where Jezebel the king of Ahab has come from. The king of Ahab's wife has come from. This is where Baal is worshipped. This is Baal HQ, the very epicentre of Baal worship. God is commanding his man Elijah to go to that place where Baal reigns to a Gentile woman, not even a woman who is part of Israel. She is a Baal worshipper, a Gentile, and she is about to hear from God and be asked to trust that word. Do you see the movement here? Do you see what's happening? Do you see why the Jews who heard Jesus' name drop this widow were so angry? Grace is being extended through Elijah beyond the borders of Israel because within those borders it had been ignored. They'd stopped listening and so God was now going to someone further. If you go on despising God's word, 
his grace to you, he will withdraw it. He'll take it away. The God who had had taken his word away from Israel was now going to speak it to this widow so far from his people. Elijah approaches her in verses 10 and 11 and almost as soon as he does, almost as soon as he opens his mouth, he intensifies her plight, makes it even worse. She is a widow with nothing and Elijah asks her for water and food. Well, verse 12, as you expect, she tells him like it is. She is no provider. She has nothing to give him. If this woman is sure of anything, she is sure of that. So sure is she. The only plan she has left in life, do you see it there, is to gather up wood, make one last meal for herself and her son and then die. That's her only plan. What Elijah asks is impossible. This woman is proving to be the last person on earth able to help him. This woman and her son are at an end. They are Thomas the tank engine on the edge of the mat, one meal away from death. Hopeless, broken. But at this dead end, God has more to say. Have a look at verse 13, Elijah's response. Some of my favourite words in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go home. Make the meal for me. Make it, make it my bit first. That's how much I want you to trust me. And see why he asked her to trust him? This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you today. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. And here in these verses I think we have as clear a picture of faith as you will ever see. Into this the uncertainty of this moment, you see what God says, don't be afraid, as he said to many before and many since. He says to this widow, I want you to bet the lot on me. Give me everything you have and I will give you everything you need. Trust me. Faith is being completely sure that when God speaks, he is telling the truth. That's what faith is. And so this widow trusts God this fanciful promise, and yet, verse 15 and 16, it is just as he said. But have a look carefully, verse 15. See how God provides for her, the same way he provides for us. It's not like he suddenly filled her pantry with endless jugs of oil and endless jars of flour, like winning the lottery, never had to worry about it again. No, verse 15, every day, God provided for her. Every day there was enough oil and enough flour. And in the end, even for us, though we may feel secure and propped up by all sorts of things, it comes down to the same decision. Can God be trusted? Are you sure he's telling the truth when he says to us, bet the lot on me, everything, heart, soul, mind, time, money, all of it, your talents, give me everything you have and I will give you everything you need. Do you believe that? The litmus test, of course, is our lives, our everyday lives, the way our minds think, the way our hearts think, what we do with our time, what we do with our money. I think this is what James was talking about when he said, faith with our deeds is dead. It's not enough to say, yes, I believe you, God, but, but I just need this backup, this, this thing. That's Baal think. 
God think is to daily say, yes, I trust him. Back to our story, verse 17, day after day God meets this lady's needs but one day is very different. This day the very life of her son fades before her eyes as he dies in her arms. Day after day God had graciously provided for her then all of a sudden God the provider stops providing in the way she's got used to, the way she expected he would. And I suspect many of us have felt like that, the constant provision of God and then all of a sudden a jolt, something we weren't expecting, something we don't understand and we're left to try and make sense of it. Well, at one level she makes perfect sense of why it has happened to her. Do you see it there in verse 18? She knows better than Israel what's caused it in her case. Sin. She knows who she is. She has worshipped Baal all her life rather than the true God. And before her eyes, in her arms, is the very fruit of that sin, the wages of that sin, death. But at another level, you get the sense that even knowing it doesn't really help her. It's not, it's not any easier for the knowing. She feels like God has singled her out. Why me? Why bring this man of God into my house just to shove my sin in my face? Why pick me? Ever felt like that? Well, verse 20, here seemingly is the limit of it. In this brief but amazing passage, we have seen God, the powerful deliverer, with power over nature, power to supply our needs, but here seemingly is the end of the line. Water, yes. Food, yes. Even widows, yes. But sin and the fruit of sin, death, well, surely that's too mighty an enemy. I mean, if we're talking about things that are sure, isn't that one of them? The only two things that are sure in life, death and taxes? Well, here is one. It's no wonder that Elijah, seeing this lifeless boy before him, cries out in pain to his God. The God he passionately follows, the God he has convinced this widow to trust. He told her, don't be afraid. You get the impression there's lots of fear in the room at that moment. God's word is certain, but so is death. Still, even now, very much afraid, Elijah knows nowhere else to go but to his God. And so he cries out again in prayer to God, the provider of life, to give it back again. And verse 22, in the same way that the servant Elijah heard his master's voice, now God hears his servant's voice. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picks up this child and carries him down from the room into the house. He gives him to his mother and he says, look, your son is alive. Imagine being there that moment. How good is that moment? Love to have been a fly on the wall. What a reunion. Your son is alive. The woman was right. She had been singled out to receive the powerful grace of God and her response, she trusts him. I mean, why wouldn't you? The God who lives gives life. The God who speaks can be trusted. His word is sure. Take this in. Our God is Lord over nature, over the earth, even Sidon, even the UK. 
But is there some sort of border, is there some sort of territory, some land where he can't go, where he doesn't have authority or power? You know, when faced with death, does he, like Baal, like our money, like our reputations, like our family, like our relationship, like everything, bow the knee before it? No. Our God bows to no man, no land, no thing, no power, not even death. And this story is just a hint of his power over it. By the time we get to Jesus as he speaks of this event, he says that this powerful grace of God is open not just to this widow but to all who would believe. John 11, the other reading we had tonight, tells a similar story of the widow's son, the story of Jesus' friend, Lazarus. By the time Jesus reaches Lazarus, he has been dead for four days. And into this situation, to the family of Lazarus, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Your brother will rise again. Jesus makes this amazing promise that blows anything, even in one king's, out of the water. Whoever trusts him will rise again. Do you believe that? The one who trusts Jesus will never die. Do you believe this? Seems fanciful, doesn't it? An amazing promise beyond our experience. An old bishop uh, in Sydney tells the story of the last meal of Robert Bruce. At his last breakfast, when he realised that he was about to die, he asked his younger daughter to open up the eighth chapter of Romans. His eyes failed, but his memory held as he repeated the last part of the chapter. And when he had recited verses 38 and 39, he asked his daughter to set his finger on those words. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die, said Robert Bruce, believing these words. Do you? However vast a man's resources are, he is capable of just one passion, just one. So let me say to you tonight, if you are going to throw everything that makes up who you are behind something, make sure it's worth that sort of passion. God says to us tonight, bet the lot on me. Give me everything you have and I will give you everything you need. I reckon there's two ways to live life. The first is all about active uncertainty and that's the way most of our world lives life. Baal think. Maximise comfort, maximise security here. Work hard here, build certainty here. Passionately, work hard. I mean, that life is uncertain but gee, it's busy. Christ does not join that chorus. He calls you instead to throw your one passion, your one life behind him to live passionate, fearless, powerful, certain lives. Are you sure your passion is rightly directed? You can be because God's word is trustworthy and true. I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray.